Hey, welcome to Global Minima, episode one. I am the producer of this show, Kit. I'm uh, the creative projects lead here at Sustainablist. And with me is my business partner, partner in crime, Jason. Introduce yourself, buddy. Hey, uh, I'm Jason Traeger. I'm the managing partner and head of data science at Sustainablist. And I am a energy data nerd. Um, I can vouch for and, that. Yeah. And so... It, if you're really curious about what that means, um, just listen to many hours of this podcast and we will explain it <laughs> for sure, in all many of different formats. Listen to all of them. <laughs> yeah, so the podcast focus is really this intersection of data, watts and dollars. We're, we're really focused on how to minimize consumption mm -hmm. uh, using data because that's the that's the next gold rush is mining energy efficiency using data. Totally. So in this goal, we are running around the world interviewing people. In fact, this current interview was conducted with our guest while he was in Abu Dhabi uh, and bringing in folks from all across the sort of professional spectrum. So we've got um, people in the academic sector. We've got people in the corporate sector. And we've also got policymakers that will be joining us on the show to talk about this their particular view into that intersection between data and energy. So that brings me to our guest for today, Dan Kamen. So Jason, why don't you give our listeners the down low on who Dan is? Yeah, so uh, Professor Dan Kamen uh, is the Distinguished Professor of Energy in the Energy and Resources Group at UC Berkeley. Uh, was the former science envoy for the State Department. He was a coordinating lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which won a 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. Um, he is a permanent fellow of the African Academy of Sciences, a Distinguished Citizen Award winner from the Commonwealth Club, and I was very fortunate to have him on my thesis committee when I was at Berkeley. So we are just getting started with this podcast, but we would love for you, after you've binged all of the I believe we'll have three episodes up from the start. After you've binged all those, we would love for you to subscribe to us and also to rate us on iTunes because that will help people who are also data wonks find out about this podcast and tune in. So aside from that, I think we're ready to roll the tape on our interview with Dan Kamen. And so without further ado, here's Dan Kamen being interviewed by Jason. Today, we are joined by Dan Kamen, and we will be discussing data and energy in the context of global development and innovation. Nice to have you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you. So just to kick it off, something that we want to talk about in these discussions is what, what was the moment that you knew that you wanted to work in energy sustainability? And tell us a little bit about yourself in, 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 in that discussion? Well, I was an undergraduate physics major and went to graduate school in physics, uh, assuming I would either become an astronaut or a professor of physics. And I did that through graduate school. And then while I was a postdoc um, at Caltech working on these topics, I started getting interested in the politics of energy 
in Central America, of all places. And this was way back when Oliver North and Reagan were doing their embargoing and invading of the country. And so I worked in Nicaragua for a couple summers and ended up writing a paper about cook stoves and politics and development that was my first paper in the field. And I sent it off somewhat blindly to nature and they accepted it. And I think that was my moment when I figured out something like that old 1920s line from baseball players where, what, they'll pay me to do this. And so I, over the last two years of my postdoc, did less and less physics and less and less theoretical neuroscience and more and more energy. And by the end of that postdoc, I felt like I was not well trained, but I was ready to make the switch. And so that's what I did. Well, uh, I, I've never heard of anyone getting a paper accidentally accepted to nature before. So that's a first. Um, so, and, and maybe, maybe it'll, it'll, uh, give the, the listeners a little context to, to hear where you are now, um, from that point. So, um, Currently, uh, you have a position at, at ERG. Is there, is there any color you'd like to add before we really get into the questions? I think so. So um, as I finished my postdoc, I actually called up the Harvard Physics Department where I had done my PhD and asked them about the opportunities to return back to, uh, to Boston, Cambridge. And there was a very interesting project going on at the time. It was a Department of Energy-funded effort to both do research on climate change models and also to think about our opportunities to reduce our climate impact and footprint. This is way back in the 1990s. And so I, I took that, um, spent a bit of time at Harvard, and then accepted a faculty job at Princeton that was in the Woodrow Wilson School of Policy. And as a physicist who moved into energy, I had never taken a policy course in my life. And so I was somewhat concerned that would be a problem, but the person hiring me had done the same thing. He was a physicist uh, named Frank von Hippel who worked on arms control. His father is actually a very famous um, refugee from Nazi Germany who had come to the United States and had founded the material science department at MIT. And so I felt like I was in good physics company. And during my, uh, my years at Princeton, I worked almost exclusively on energy issues in developing countries, in Nicaragua, in terms of rural energy in Africa, mm-hmm. and a variety of topics that mainly related to underserved populations. And then when Berkeley announced they were looking for um, someone to join their energy resources group at the time that John Holdren, who a uh, very distinguished physicist who had worked mm-hmm. on sustainability and actually was the longest running science advisor to a president in U.S. history uh, under Obama had departed, I ended up being a fit for that. I was delighted and moved out to Berkeley. And uh, over the 20 years I've been there, I've worked on a range of projects, both energy and developing countries, and increasingly on uh, models of the grid and the smart grid. And I am today now the chair of the Energy and Resources Group. But I also have parallel appointments in the Goldman School of Policy and in nuclear engineering. And during the 20 years at 
Berkeley, I've taken a sabbatical year out to go to the World Bank to be their chief technical specialist for renewable energy. And also I've spent a year out at the uh, Department of State for the United States government serving as the science envoy, essentially being a technical liaison to countries primarily in the Middle East and Africa that wanted to work on aspects of the energy transition. I have no excuse for saying that I'm busy from now on. So when you first started your career, what did you have to do to get data about the projects that you were working on? Well, so I started at a time pre-cell phone, um, pre-wireless sensors and chips. And so when I started, it really sounds primitive by today's standards. My first big project after that work in Nicaragua on cook stoves that got published in Nature was a overly ambitious effort in Kenya to look at the health impacts of biomass fuels and cooking on families, primarily women and children. And at the time, what that meant was I had picked out a research site in central Kenya where Princeton operated a research station. And so there was a community living there of about 500 uh, pastoralists and um, nomadic people that burned very traditional fuels, some wood, but quite a lot of dung and other ag residues. And so what I did at the time was actually to take air samples inside their homes in metal canisters, and you would open them up, take an air sample, and then seal them up and then bring them back to the United States. That is truly cumbersome if you want high-resolution data in time. And as we worked on this more and more, some new technologies came out that at the time seemed like a great advance in terms of data collection. And so this great advance was instead of taking air samples and then storing them and bringing them back on the airplane, which was not simple in itself, we then took paper discs and sucked air through them and weighed them very carefully pre and post exposure and used that weight difference to figure out how much particulates were plated out on these, on these air filters. And as you can imagine, that is not the most uh, sensitive way to do things. It's also not the one where you can do truly high resolution data. And so when we were gathering this data on a five minute uh, interval basis back then, that was seen as really the forefront of big data. And now, of course, I have students who go to the field with their their smartphone and with a small infrared sensor or a interacting laser sensor, and they literally get real-time data on the pollution loads in people's homes. And so the data advances have been dramatic, but what we were able to get out of that at the time was quite revolutionary. We were able to get the exposure response relationship or the dose response relationship for over 200 people in traditional huts in very rural parts of Kenya and to look at what the health impacts of those people were based on their daily exposure. So we did all of these incredibly detailed studies in people's homes, and then we had everyone in the study take a physical exam every 10 days. So this was big, big data by our standards at the time. And even today, it's a little bit on the uh, intense side. So that's where I really got to appreciate how valuable that data is and just how much of it you really want to get if you're going to really delve into these interesting energy, health, development questions. 
Yeah. And, and I can imagine that part of the evolution has been um, actually taking a lot of the burden time out of the studies where all of this data collection has to happen as sensors has have to evolve and, and putting it more into the analysis and the discovery of, of what the impacts of, of the data findings are um, uh, as, as the, the sensing systems have modernized. It's true uh, so. that's, that's the case. We certainly gather more data, but what I found interesting about this work um, is that once we got these systems developed and developed new sensors, we, we ran into a situation which is not unlike what we see in a lot of fields today, and that is while getting the data was very hard, once we got these flows going, in the end, the problem was the reverse, and that was that we actually didn't have enough capacity to analyze it all. And I just have talked to some colleagues who have sort of similar experiences in terms of the data that's gathered by smart buildings. And they're essentially overwhelmed mm -hmm. by the amount of information once they get their systems up and running. And over and mm -hmm. over again, I've discovered colleagues who kind of have the same situation where initially they had no data, they put a huge amount of effort into gathering it, and then they were overwhelmed by it. And so one of the things that's happened in my work, both in this area of cook stoves and health and the energy health uh, nexus, and then another area where my lab is very active, which is building models of the power grids for entire countries. We've built a model called SWITCH, which means solar and wind integrated with transmission and conventional energy, kind of a rough acronym. And we build SWITCH models for Western United States. Mexico, Nicaragua, Kenya, Uganda, and our biggest team is working on switch model of the entire Chinese grid. And so now we're at a point where we would love to get higher and higher resolution data, but in many cases, that data in terms of the operation of every power plant in China or every power plant in Kenya at a minute by minute basis doesn't exist. And if it did exist, the computational ability to uh, put it all into a model is actually quite a challenge. And so while big data is sort of everyone's goal, there can be a point where you overwhelm yourself. And so we do quite a bit of applied math work to build tractable models that don't throw away critical information, but that allow us to build versions of that modeling package so that you don't have to just be one of our PhD students or myself to really work with the information because ultimately we want to change behavior around energy systems, not just overwhelm our potential partners with the amount of data that we collect or that we seem to need. Right. Yeah. Often with data that large, you can lose ability to do uh, exploratory data analysis because you'll just drown in it. Um, so you need to know how to ask the questions and get the information out without, you know, looking at a bajillion graphs. That's right. Um, yeah. So anything else you want to add about your, your current work and projects? Well, I think it's really been an interesting mix where we do these things from off-grid energy like the cook stoves in Kenya or a big part of my laboratory now looks at the data requirements to do off-grid distributed solar home systems for rural households in Southeast Asia or East Africa uh, or work on mini grids where we're looking at what will it take to power a community 
with generally a mixture of wind and solar and in some cases micro hydro and to manage that system which is basically a little utility where the person or people who manage it are doing it generally part-time they're not experts on inverters for the solar systems or the switch gears required to go between technologies and so we also try to build simplified but reasonable interfaces so that you can take advantage of what smartphones and some distributed computation will do but build systems that are they're usable by by regular individuals and then at these grid level systems the switch model the story has shifted from the old world where the governing equation was energy generated must equal energy consumed plus whatever energy you waste to a new master equation which is energy generated has to equal energy consumed plus the energy you put into storage now that lithium ion batteries and pumped hydro and flow batteries and fuel cells and all these technologies have given us an ability to store energy um, economically efficiently. So now we have this master equation which is added a term and it's meant that we have a sort of a wonderfully complex opportunity to overgenerate at one period of time when the sun is out or the wind is blowing and not to waste that but to now optimize the best way to storage and store it. Mm-hmm. And so we do things from very rural mini grids in challenging places like relief camps on the Kenyan South Sudan border to the other extreme building super luxury systems to manage the energy on resort islands owned by Richard Branson or Marlon Brando all the way up then to can the entire Chinese power se- sector, the biggest system in the world, optimize itself around reliability and low carbon? And so we find the tools are pretty similar, but often the scale of analysis and the need to partner with many, many different groups to gather the data and to think through things changes as you go from that really small scale to these massive systems. Hey there, Global Minimal listeners. We thought you might be curious why we started this podcast. So here's the deal. Sustainablist, our company, is on a mission to help organizations in the clean energy space utilize their data to improve their processes. Whether it's sales optimization aimed at designing more productive portfolios of leads, DER multi-objective optimization that accounts for the complex constraints found in this space like battery or array size, grid topology, EV distribution, and local policies or just figuring out where to start on your data journey. Sustainablist combines deep data science acumen with a time-tested knowledge of the clean energy space. To find out how we can help your clean tech organization, visit us at sustainablist.com GM. That's sustainablist.com GM for global minima. All right, back to the podcast. I think that my favorite storage technology that has been popularized in the past year uh, is the system that um, stores energy by lifting concrete blocks and generates energy by lowering them. Because um, when that first came out, I was like, that's so dumb. It's brilliant. It's funny you say that because I'm actually uh, here in Abu Dhabi talking with a company today and tomorrow afternoon brilliant. that's doing exactly that. And actually, they turn out to be a company based now in Switzerland, but it's a spin off of a, a research team at Caltech. Um, and it's actually a team that I knew when I was a postdoc, uh, sort of the beginning of the story. 
And so the founding partner of that effort is going to be giving one of the keynotes tomorrow about the effort to do exactly what you say. And so it for me, it comes in an interesting full circle where I'll be talking to this gentleman, Bill Gross, um, at a company called Heliogen um, that is, in fact, this very kind of interesting company doing exactly that. Don't lift water. If you don't have water, lift rock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I love that. It's 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 simple and and it works. And, and I think that that's one of the, the themes of appropriate technologies, um, typically, is, is, you know, trying to get the most simple version of, of, a, of a technology for a- any situation. Um, you've been running the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Laboratory at Berkeley for a while now. Um, and I, I actually uh, had a great time with a, with a bunch of them when, when I was at Berkeley because we were on the same floor. Um, and so I, I'm pretty familiar with the results that were coming out at, at that time. Um, and one of the things that, that was happening then was cool climate and cool cities. Um, and, and, uh, and I'm curious how this has influenced your perception of what needs to happen in transportation and also uh, in mini grids and cities. Um, how, how have those calculations and the, the, um, data analysis around how um, carbon impacts are happening in cities uh, influence your view there? Well, I'm glad you brought up the RAIL lab, the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Lab, because that's the thing I founded 20 years ago when I got to Berkeley. And I certainly didn't have any specific plan for topics we would or would not work on over time. But you're absolutely right. Some of the projects that we've spun out include this cool climate calculator um, that the state of California asked us to build, where you can essentially go on and not only do your carbon footprint by entering how much energy you use from your utility bill, do you drive to work, do you take a bicycle to work, what's your diet, are you kind of a carnivore, an omnivore, a pescivore, a vegetarian, a vampire, whatever your diet may be, (laughs) and look at what your footprint is. But then we built in an app uh, to it that we call the Take Action page. And what it basically means is that the program scans through your entries and tells the user, here are the next 20 or 30 things that we would recommend based on what you don't do and how much energy they would save, how much energy and carbon they would save. And so that Take Action page is a wonderful way to interact with users. We are constantly being challenged by groups that say, well, I really wish you also had a question that toggled around, do I buy organic food or this and that, so that they can know some real subtle differences in their, in their carbon footprints. And so it's been a way to both get very interactive with users, but also then to scale up the data and think about the questions you mentioned. And that is how much... Uh, of a carbon footprint can you save at the household level, at the city level, at the state level by encouraging behavior in one direction or another. And so many of the projects that come out of that work are essentially those efforts to build data sets around things that we can collect, whether it's cooperating with utilities or getting our users to give data back to us, but then to find a way to optimize around 
what is really the motivation for the entire rail laboratory. And that is how do we decarbonize all of our systems, but not just cut the carbon, ideally better the services. And so one of the things that we've built is a jobs calculator that allows us to look at how many people would you employ in, for example, energy efficiency or solar versus traditional energy and how much of a improvement in service in the terms of reliability would you get if your community builds, for example, a mini grid versus staying connected to the big grid? And we have some practical projects, one of which is called the EcoBlock. It's actually a community of about 40 homes in a lower income area of Oakland, California, where we're wiring not only a mini grid on the power side, but also connecting the homes in terms of managing their trash and waste and sewage and do that at the community level. Because one of the interesting things that's emerged in the energy field is that as we think about distributing solar power or electric vehicles, we as a community have generally first thought about doing it home by home, giving subsidies Mm -hmm. or incentives for each building or homeowner to to make the transition. But it's far from clear that that's the optimal scale. It might be that a community, for in our case, a block or a neighborhood or a city is really the right level to optimize. And it has to do with the amount of materials it takes to build solar or build waste management systems. And so one of the things that we're exploring in the rail lab now on the city level is what are those optimal sizes to decarbonize as much as possible and to make the services out of the green energy economy actively superior to what we were doing before. Because after all, if all you do is switch from brown, dirty electrons to green ones, You might be improving the footprint of the planet, but you're not doing a very compelling message in terms of customers and users. And so we would like to make the overall quality of service that you get in this new energy economy, not just far greener, but actively better than what we're transitioning away from. Yeah, uh, I think that I think that we should officially classify brown electrons in um, quantum chromodynamics. So it's interesting what you just spoke about. It's kind of like an environmental justice issue, which has been a hot topic uh, this past year, both in the U.S. and internationally. There's been a lot of talk uh, about Green New Deal, which has been uh, a very popular uh, topic among those who want to live. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, what can the wider energy and climate community learn from? the broad social message that comes from the Green New Deal and the implications of this social justice research that you do? Well, it's a really interesting question because the big criticism of the Green New Deal has been that it's sort of some amorphous, broad strategy to make energy systems better and more available to low-income people, but it doesn't do anything concrete. And I have the complete opposite view. I'm a huge believer in both the high-level concept of the Green New Deal, and I really thank uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Sanders and others for championing the idea, Senator Markey. Uh, But also I find that 
the energy transition is just not possible without it. Because if you only target the affluent in your new energy choices, be it personal choices like buying an electric vehicle or corporate choices like adopting an internal carbon price at some of the biggest companies, you lose out on the ability to make the transition one where there's broad, not only support, but recognition that the clean energy economy isn't just greener electrons, but it's actively better. And so a lot of projects we're doing in the laboratory now really highlight that. And so one we did last year, I think really pulled together a lot of those elements. So what we did was we partnered with Google that has a project called Sunroof. And by Mm -hmm. using airplanes and um, drones, they have gathered data on over 60 million rooftops across the country. And it's everything from what's the quality of the roof, what's the slope, and roughly which roofs have solar on it, which turn out not to be the simplest question because frequently a roof that looks like it has solar, you might be confusing it with skylights or other features. And so my group and others have done a lot of machine learning to identify solar on rooftops. What we found by gathering the data isn't just where the solar is, but who has it and who doesn't. And so one of the really depressing uh, things that we found was that if you look at where the solar is, you very quickly recognize from the data that solar is far more common on the rooftops of affluent white people than Latinos, African-Americans, et cetera. And so that's probably not surprising to many people because more white people are affluent. But even when we controlled for income by using census records on the income of the households, we found that even when you take that out, solar is still more representative on the rooftops in whiter communities than browner ones. And that probably shouldn't have surprised me, but it did. And so the next part of the story was to go in and ask, well, why is that the case? When you bring out income, it's still that way. And so what we have found is that many of the early programs that targeted the installers of solar or energy efficiency went into more white communities than minority communities, even when you were trying to really reach similar economic levels. And so to my mind, this sounds bad, but it actually is a quite positive lesson if we act on it. Because what it means is that it's not just about technology, it's about seeding the installers and building Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs in these new technologies. And if you don't make that process inclusive, no surprise, you find that you install more of this in the communities where, for want of a better word, the groups that funded those efforts, departments of energy at the federal level and state programs had connections. And so a Green New Deal in this case is not just about greening the economy, but it's about making sure that when we start to install electric vehicle chargers, for example, that we make sure that that's an inclusive process where the jobs and the opportunities don't just go to those whiter neighborhoods. And so as the Green New Deal evolves, I'm actually quite hopeful that 
learning these lessons that come out of big data and analysis and this social and this social awareness will allow us to make the new energy economy far more inclusive than what we're trying to leave behind. And that, to my mind, is really what makes a movement and makes clean energy something that we can all get behind, not just the privileged. Yeah, and I, I think you'd be glad to know that in a lot of our interactions over the past few years in industry, we've been getting asked to help companies use data to evaluate diversity in the industry and then start to make plans around that. And it, it has been a really active topic in, in solar specifically um, and also uh, in energy efficiency where we work. I mean, that's great to hear because I, I really do think like efforts to launch the original uh, New Deal where it was all about inclusivity and in terms of efforts to build social movement around things like the apartheid, the boycotting apartheid in South Africa, where there were some efforts to make this a more inclusive process. That's ultimately where the new energy economy, I think, will have its greatest legs, not just being about the, the most interesting gadgets, the coolest new energy storage systems, the, 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 the most interesting ways to manage energy supply, but to make that process one where the benefits spread the most widely from the beginning. And so we can really get very different communities all behind this radical transformation, this phasing out entirely of carbon emissions that we're going to need mm -hmm. to do now over just a very few decades. Yeah. And I, and I know, I know that I've seen the national American board of certified energy practitioners, NABCEP, and also the, the solar foundation, both start to circulate plans and proposals around diversity in the industry that are, that are looking very progressive. And, and those groups have been uh, very, very uh, on the forefront. Um, and so that's been good. And, and I think that, I think that just kind of talk about data and how we look at data and, and how we um, help people understand what, what the actual climate issues are. Um, uh, you had, you had a pushback on, on, on your website on Jonathan, uh, Frazen's widely circulated essay last year. Um, I think the the title was something like, we're all going to die of climate change, so I'm going to have a margarita right now. Uh, yes, a very sad kind of paper. And so, yeah, it's an interesting piece. I mean, it got a lot of uh, uh, press. And essentially, the argument he was making was that for too long, the climate movement was too insular. It was very technical, very science focused and didn't build much of a following. And mm -hmm. we consequently didn't act on the very clear climate information because it was held by a small group of people and we weren't seeing climate change in front of our nose. And then we go through a period of time over the last few years where the fires in Australia and California and Russia and India and the pollution events that we're seeing all came together to make climate change very clear to almost everyone. There's a few residents mm -hmm. of the White House who seem to be doing their best to avoid that information. But for almost all the rest of the planet, the climate change story is very real. But we're so far down the road of the fossil fuel economy that, that there's no hope. And so the Franzen argument I found to go from one of ignoring the issue and the science to saying, well, we are doomed. Let's uh, essentially 
throw in the towel. And that's such an odd perspective because one of the features that we've learned about the economy is that while it looked like fossil fuels were the dominant form of energy and essentially unchangeable, now that we have seen prices fall for clean energy and a movement around it start to build, what we've discovered that is in the places that took it seriously, and there's still far too few of them, the transition act happened actually quite quickly. And so California and Germany and the United Kingdom and Denmark um, and Kenya are diverse places that have all moved very quickly to a clean energy mix. Now, there's challenges in every one of them. The United States, obviously, we ramped up very quickly in the last few years of Obama. We've gone the opposite direction under Mr. Trump. Kenya, which has a very clean energy mix today, is actually debating building its first coal plant. Bangladesh, that had the world's most active and information-rich program to support household solar, is now considering building a massive coal plant right in the middle of the Sundarban mangrove swamps, this incredibly sensitive ecological area where the largest remaining population of lowland tigers live. So there's a whole range of places that have done great things, but have very fragile victories. And essentially in every one of these cases, it's a mixture of better and better clean energy technologies and data systems so that we can understand the economic benefits of going green. And we can also chart and document how big the damages are of the fossil fuel system. And so Mm -hmm. I don't want to make it sound like perfect information and cost declines in solar and wind and storage win the day right off. But it's pretty clear that if you don't think in terms of how can we educate people, some of whom don't want to hear about a new system, but how can we educate people more broadly and make the benefits of the transition more and more available? Those are clearly necessary ingredients of this very large transition we're going to need to do if we can really reduce the world's fossil fuel use. And fossil fuels are currently more than 80% of global energy and essentially entirely phase that out now in three decades. Yeah. 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 And and I think kind of turning to how people inform policy in their own homes and countries using data, uh, uh, one, how can the average lay person tell who's an authority in this space and how can they ask questions about the state of the climate that are data driven? And maybe we could talk a little bit about your work with with Peak and about the way you've looked at gathering information from local businesses and how those have informed policies in the countries that that project's in. So the, the Peak effort's really interesting because one of the things that everyone knows about the energy transition is that no matter how good your policies are, whether you have a wonderfully efficient way to reward solar as Germany developed with feed-in tariffs, or the policy in California that essentially won't permit a new fossil fuel plant to be built unless the proposers have looked in detail at 
the benefits of investing in energy efficiency and renewables, where you almost always find those are cheaper when you when you go there. But the peak effort recognizes that no matter how good the policies are, you're never going to get to that clean energy goal if everything is being driven by the public sector. There's not enough money in the R&D coffers. There's not enough money to incentivize these transitions unless the private sector is really engaged. And so some of the projects that have come out of this uh, peak effort are things like requiring that every new home built in California after the first of this year, so just a few uh, days ago, every new home has to generate as much energy over the course of one year as it consumes. And that put a very clear signal in front of the housing industry. And unfortunately, in the United States, California builds about one out of every five new homes. That's something we're going to have to change. But that means that if you change this rule in California, you send a very strong signal to the housing industry nationwide because you gain experience in California. You discover all kinds of interesting tricks that bring down the cost of solar. So one is that if you're an area like California where you must build solar on your rooftop, that means that you want to have a good west or south-facing roof. It also means Mm -hmm. you want to have a circuit box that already has the capacity to take on the inverter that the solar system will need. And that means that you want to make your home as efficient as possible because the most cost-effective form of energy is the energy you don't need. Not that you don't want, but that you don't need. And so if you make your building, whether it's a home or an office building or a small factory, very efficient, you need less solar for the rooftop. You need to buy less clean energy off of the grid. And so it's essentially a very clever and insidious way to incentivize not only energy efficiency, but also clean energy. And the more and more companies that we reach out to and that interact with their own public utilities commissions around the job benefits of clean energy and the potential savings by going this way, it really gives me a lot of hope that if we can take the lessons from these states that have made clear leadership strides, it's not just California with its 100% clean energy target for 2045, but now mm-hmm. New Mexico and New York State and Washington State and Wisconsin are all adopting similar targets. And so if we can get new federal leadership that recognizes these benefits that we're seeing emerging at the state level, I actually think we can pivot to clean energy far more quickly than people think. And that's what gives me a great deal of hope And it's this mixture of data and new technology and policy that all have to come together. But it's certainly a possible thing to do if we had the kind of federal leadership that I would argue we had in the second term under the Obama administration. Yeah, that that sure did help. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I I read um, I read a blurb. uh, I didn't read the whole study yet uh, this morning about. A study out of Stanford saying that if we just switched to clean energy, it would pay off in seven years. That completely jives with everything that I read in the research uh, these days is that the, the minute we, we take this seriously, 
it will pay off quickly. And um, that's the only thing that I think yeah, you can really look at to give you hope because with the U.S. politically going in the wrong direction on clean energy right now, the fact that if we were aligned, we can move very quickly. That really is the thing that fights off the sort of despair that we're hearing under many channels that you know, this is going to be so hard. We know we could do it, but we do need to align these incentives. Yeah, and I think that a lot of us in the industry get a lot of questions about how to be hopeful, right? And I think that a good way to do that is to understand the, the process of innovation, which is actually something that you're passionate about. The theoretical work that you do is how to understand and accelerate the process of innovation. And so I, I, I guess as we, as we move towards the tail of the hour, what does that entail? And, and how does one go about studying innovation? Well, I certainly wasn't trained in studying innovation. Um, in physics, you sort of think that all of what you're doing is hopefully innovative and innovating and innovative and creative. But how you actually examine what you can do to enable innovation is, is kind of a new thing for me. So initially, um, as I got into this uh, now over two decades ago, I actually started by reading a lot of the economics literature. And um, Robert Solow at MIT received an, uh, his Nobel Prize for looking at the growth of uh, economies. He looked largely at the U.S. and Europe. And what he concluded was that while the inputs to economic activity are generally capital and labor, that actually the thing that made the biggest difference was new technology and innovation. And in his sort of famous parsing of these, what he found uh, was that you really couldn't understand economic growth unless you put a very large term in for technological change. And the, 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 the number is kind of remarkable. He found that more than 80% of economic growth, he actually found 87% in the historic data from the United States, was due to new technology. And hmm. so looking at that as an open invitation to explore what it takes to make innovation work. I've done a lot of work over the years in trying to quantify innovation by looking at dollars spent on programs in solar or in energy storage or investing in refrigerators, a variety of different technologies, and then using metrics like dollars spent or patents generated or high value patents. Or one of my favorite measures is not just the amount of resources, but actually the amount of people that go into the technological side. And so actually one metric I've played with a lot is people who drop out of a PhD, but don't leave the field. <laughs> Many people who get the PhD go on to be professors. And while I'd like to think we do something useful, there is a, a good argument to be made that people who decide to leave the PhD or get the PhD and go direct into the startup culture are people who are really trying to put those ideas into practice. And so in Silicon Valley, where everything is about innovation and the culture or the environment of creativity, we've done a lot to try to track which programs, which aspects of Silicon Valley were really the most conducive to innovation. And you keep coming back to there has to be money flowing into the area, but there also has to be a way to exchange ideas freely. And Silicon Valley is really all about people moving between companies. 
but also there needs to be an enabling political environment. And so in California, where the state government has been very proactive in putting these ideas into place, we kind of see those things coming together. A research budget that's sufficient and is sustained. Also efforts to put not just money, but also the conditions together so that particularly young people can really go back and forth between companies and go back and forth to academia, go to national labs. And then ultimately, you know that good ideas are going to be accepted and will become part of the state landscape. And so a nice example of this is that 15 years ago, state of California set a goal for 1 million solar rooftops. It's called Senate yeah. Bill 1. People were very skeptical that that was possible. California met its 2020 goal early and California launched a goal, which our lab was part of, of a million electric vehicles. And people were even more skeptical about that. And California is now approaching 700,000 electric vehicles. And while I don't think we'll get all the way to a million exactly by 2020, we're going to be so close that the state is now working on its next objectives, two and three and four million electric vehicles. And so one of the things that my lab is doing is working with state government and some of the auto manufacturers, both in California and in China, to now think about goals of 100% of the vehicles being electric or hydrogen so that we remove all tailpipe emissions entirely from transportation. And that wouldn't have gone on without the kind of high-profile efforts that you see with Tesla in the United States and Build Your Dreams. It's a company, the acronym is BYD in China, that not only makes a very widely used electric vehicle, but also does very low-cost electric vehicles. And so their next release will be a $9,000 EV with a 100-mile range so that we can start to make zero emission vehicles available up and down the economic spectrum from those fanciest Teslas and other high-end ones to these really low-end vehicles. And that's an example of not only finding what it takes to support innovation, but going from the theoretical ideas and the data-centric stuff we started with to how do you really put it into practice. And and I think that that really ties into the thesis that we have at Sustainableist, which is that uh, the same mass production methodologies and innovation techniques that have been around for a hundred years that got us into this mess by you know mass producing and mass consuming can get us out, um, and that we can we can mass produce sustainable technologies. I, I do want to give a shout out to the California Solar and Storage Association that helped all of those tradespeople put those solar roofs together and put solar on those roofs because. Uh, we were we were hearing all about that this this past year, and and they did a really tremendous job helping make that happen. Well, that's right. They've been extraordinary in terms of working with cities and housing developers and a whole variety of of, of actors up and down the spectrum. And then at the at the at the environmental justice at the Green New Deal end, we have groups like Grid Alternatives that do the same oh, yeah. thing, but for the lowest income people. And so Grid. Alternatives is an example of a group that said we can make energy efficiency and solar available to the lowest income people and will not only do that by working with the builders of these 
homes, often townhomes or what we call projects in the old days, but also to make the training available so that people who are high school dropouts, people who are leaving prison can get into the efficiency and solar installation business as good first jobs back into the workforce and essentially take that Green New Deal mentality and make it far more inclusive than really anyone thought was going to be the case before. And that's been kind of a wonderful feature of what we could do, where we need to do much more of it. But it really speaks to the ability to think about this distributed clean energy economy as one that has the potential to be much more inclusive than that based around big distant polluting power plants i mean you know we, if we had just listened to emory lovins back in the day uh we'd have uh we'd have done this in the first place <laughs> well that's right actually so amory and i just wrote a paper together called recalibrating climate prospects we released it for the for the climate meeting that just took place quite unsuccessfully i might add in madrid but the paper was really all about looking at the data and realizing that it didn't take all that much. It took really the stimulus package under President Obama for the U.S. to go from a laggard to a leader. And one of the real tragedies of Mr. Trump stepping away from the climate negotiations is that the big partner for the United States under President Obama was China. And China has now moved to a leadership position globally in terms of manufacturing solar panels and wind turbines and batteries for electric vehicles, but they haven't been anywhere near as aggressive in the last few years since Obama left office. And you can really make an argument that what you really need to reach for the top is a good, strong competitor. And with the U.S. stepping back, China has been a bit less of an innovator. In fact, you can argue quite a bit less of an innovator without that strong competitive challenge that they were getting from the United States. And so we don't just lose in the United States by moving away from the clean energy vision. We see the global economy stepping back to a degree. And that's really what Amor I wrote about in this paper, um, Recalibrating Climate Prospects. I, for one, am convinced that we're going to get back to, to innovating in the very near future and better. being a climate leader. I am uh, this year leading uh, a little working group on uh, prefabrication in solar, just like, you know, we've seen uh, booms in modular construction. And I, I, I think that's the next wave is that the clean energy revolution is going to follow the same track as the automotive revolution and as the industrialization of, of healthcare. It's just going to uh, become so much more data-driven and packaged and uh, mass-produced. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen faster than many projections uh, out there. Um, and so with that, I, I'd love to ask if you have any closing thoughts. Sounds good. I, mean, I really do think that the but the, the pessimism that many people are seeing now over how bad the climate crisis is, and it's really bad in terms of the fires in Australia, in terms of coral reefs, in terms of lack of loss of biodiversity, in terms of building gas on coal plants that we don't need relative to renewables. There's a lot to be depressed about. But at the same time, we are finding that the clean energy economy employs more people, invests in companies and 
uh, human development as opposed to essentially buying fossil fuels, uh, pouring our money down a, uh, a coal mine or a, an oil well, if you will. And so the upside of this transition is so large that I would like to think that as soon as we get a little better policy at the federal level in the United States, we already have every other country that has signed on to the, at least the concept of the Paris Accords, if not the details. But if we get the big industrial leaders and it doesn't work without the U.S. involved, that we have a situation where this green energy transition really can take place. And these numbers like aiming for formerly only two degrees of rise and now one and a half degree of rise of temperature, these are achievable because the range of benefits that you get is so large. And so right now we have one country w working in the wrong direction. That's sadly us in the United States. But the overall message that comes out of every bit of kind of data-based analysis is that this transition is far easier than we're making it be. And that I think is really the, the, the good news lesson um, that we should all be really recognizing. It's not about despair, it's about making hope operational. That's it for our first episode of Global Minima. Thank you for joining us on this journey with Dan Kamen. We have so much more in store for you and tell your friends about us, rate us on iTunes and subscribe to us because we've got a lot more for all you folks out there who are interested in this intersection of data, watts and dollars. 